Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The national labor shortage impacts a number of important sectors, including the largest group of healthcare workers in the U.S., nurses. Yet few nurses to fulfill demand is a problem that predates the pandemic. It's a convergence of a number of factors, like faculty shortages and nursing degree programs. The Connecticut League of Nursing and Connecticut Data Collaborative found that in 2020, only 23% of nursing school applicants were able to pursue a degree because of capacity issues. There's also burnout from the pandemic, causing nurses to, quote, leave their jobs in droves. That's according to the Boston Globe thereby worsening staffing shortages at hospitals. And those hospitals have needed to rely on travel nurses. But lawmakers now want to investigate the agencies that charge health care facilities for travel nurses. Coming up where we live, we hear from a Connecticut native who's an ICU travel nurse. And we talk to Sarah DiGregorio, author of a forthcoming cultural history of nursing. Now, given all the pressures on nursing, we wanted to learn more about a plan announced just last week, a partnership between Yale New Haven Health System and several state universities to expand the pipeline for nursing. Joining us now to talk about that on the phone, Beth Beckman, Chief Nursing Executive at Yale New Haven Health System. Beth, welcome to our show. Thank you, Lucy, and thank you for having me. Our listeners can join as well, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at where we live. So this announcement over the next four years, uh, Yale New Haven Health System will commit $1.7 million to increase opportunities for students at Fairfield University, Gateway Community College, Quinnipiac, and Southern Connecticut State University to pursue careers in nursing. Beth, can you tell us how this partnership happened? Uh, thanks, Lucy. Yes, um, you kind of said it all with the introduction. Um, this is really an unusual time of crisis for nurse staffing levels and we, we have to go about things differently, and for us it was understanding how do we increase the pipeline, and that's probably only half the story. Once we increase the pipeline, we have to make sure that we onboard and transition them well. So the second half of the story is making sure that we have enough preceptors, enough what we call wisdom workers, to teach them how to be nurses. So we started with part one, which was um, increasing the pipeline and solving really for two problems. One is faculty shortage, which has been going on for decades, and two is the clinical placements, which has always been a problem as well. So we sat down with the four universities and said, what could we do? How could we do it? And uh, by the way, uh, we are spending 1.7 or more per year for the next four years. Mm. Now, faculty shortages, uh, that can that's something that uh, listeners can wrap their minds around. But when you talk about clinical placements, describe that and why that's so important. Yeah, thank you for the question. It's um, There are requirements that every student has to have in each kind of clinical practice in order to meet um, the, the regulation to graduate. 
and pediatric psychiatry, ICU, you know, a, a variety of areas where they must get clinical hours. And um, we always have had for decades uh, more requests than we, we had time. And initially, students worked, you know, their clinical hours Monday, Monday through Friday, usually daylight hours. Now students go 24-7. Um, they, we have such need uh, for students and clinical placements that hospitals obviously work 24-7, so we've been folding them into 24-7, and now we'll probably have to get even more creative. So when you talk about getting even more creative, maybe elaborate there, because my understanding with this plan over the next four years, the hope is to have 500 extra students. And so if there's already a shortage for clinical placements, how are you going to address that? It's probably more um, viewing the world more creatively than we ever have before. If over the next four years we're going to graduate 557 above and beyond what we've normally done, then, you know, uh, we'll, we'll have to think about where we're going to put them and get the same sort of experience that would qualify for graduation. So it's, it's really probably getting more efficient and effective with how we do it and um, still meet the regulatory requirements. Can you give us an example of, say, traditionally how a clinical placement would work? So say, sure. um, and then maybe describe how you, when you would talk about being creative, how would that change? So let me go to the area of psychiatric clinical rotations. Uh, traditionally, we would, and, and there, we are underbedded for the number of psych patients, so we don't have enough psychiatric units for students to get all their clinical experience. But we have a lot of psych patients in our hospitals. And um, though they aren't cohorted, we can certainly get them the psych experience in different units in different ways in, in, um, other than the traditional cohorting into psych units. Pediatrics, um, is it possible for us to get them the same sort of learning, same sort of experience in ambulatory settings as we do in patient settings? So it'll be working with our academic colleagues to understand what could we do in a more creative way and and it's, it's um, going at solving the problem together. When we talk about these 500 extra students, maybe more about um, when we talk about recruiting uh, these students and, you know, places where you see improvements are needed uh, as we think about, you know, the nursing profession in our state, Beth. Yeah, um, that's the easiest part of this equation. Uh, when I talk to the four schools, uh, Southern Connecticut, Fairfield, Gateway, and Quinnipiac, ask them how many students um, that were qualified, that they were getting applications from that were left on the sidelines, it was over 1,700 per year. And so, you know, when you think about that, that's the easy parts. Once we got to the point that we had decided what the program would look like and what the partnership would look like uh, between the academic uh, universities and Yale New Haven Health System, um, they started calling um, their uh, candidates and saying, uh, we have an open spot. People are thrilled. And in many ways, for these students that have sometimes been waiting years for placement, it's life-changing for them. And um, some of what we've done in this partnership is those who are disadvantaged. In fact, all the students are going to get some sort of support for computer supplies, uh, books, et cetera. 
but some will get, um, you know, full scholarships, which will be life-changing for some of our diversity candidates who otherwise would never have been able to go to school. You're hearing Beth Beckman on the phone with us, Chief Nursing Executive at Yale New Haven Health System, talking about a partnership between the health system and several Connecticut universities to help uh, boost uh, not only uh, the number of nursing school applicants who are able to graduate, but to help uh, address uh, other uh, issues in uh, the pipeline, and that is having enough faculty and also clinical placements so that uh, these nursing students are trained uh, efficiently, uh, as, as Beth mentioned mentioned uh, before they start their careers. You know, in this pandemic, we've done a, a number of shows talking about uh, healthcare workers, Beth, and we know that nurses have been pretty outspoken about the unsafe conditions they've been dealing with during the pandemic. Looking at nurse-to-patient radio is, ratio, rather, as part of the, the potential problem. And so, as a, someone who's been in this field for some time, uh, do you see this as only a pipeline issue, or what about the working conditions that nurses are under today? Yeah, I think we're in a state of um, managing a lot of complex issues. Uh, You mentioned uh, the pandemic and the impact of the pandemic on nursing has been tremendous. There isn't a nurse leader across the country, if not the world, that isn't talking about the moral distress and um, the impact it's had on people feeling like um, they want to do nursing. So, You know, for us, um, solving for that problem, there's a silver lining to everything, right? Every time you go through these horrible, chaotic times, um, it's an opportunity to step back and take a look at what is it you need to do and how do you do it differently? And for us, there isn't any part of the work environment that we aren't looking about. How can we make it easier? How can we make it more uh, value-add? for anybody who's an employee in our system. And uh, to be really honest with you, uh, for nurses, um, what will come out of this is um, two, three years from now, a better situation for work environment. So how do you get there two, three years from now? So when you think about the nurses that your hospital system employs now that are burnt out, as you mentioned, this uh, moral distress that they're undergoing, you know, to to keep them wanting to be in this profession, to be mentors for some of these nursing school graduates that you're trying to boost. That's right. Um, You know, uh, there's a variety of things that we're trying to put together. Obviously, um, speaking broadly, everybody is... um, going to benefit from strong shared governance. We're not going to have all the answers ourselves. We need to incorporate the front line in telling us what it is we need to be doing and differently. There's far more to this equation than just pay. There is, you know, value add. There is uh, relationships with their interdisciplinary colleagues. There is having a voice in in what it looks like to workflow and, and how we onboard and, you know, who we who we um, p- permit to ensure that we, we have the right number of nurses um, at the bedside um, uh, to the right quotient of um, skill mix. It's, it's very complicated, and for us, it's getting it all right. And uh, we're in the process of doing a variety of things that are going to be really exciting um, to help address some of that. I, I think most organizations have stood up programs of, of um, allowing people to unpack what's happened, the emotional impact of what's happened. And now we have to give them the time to be able to step up when they're ready to engage in that. And 
they've been on a fast pace for two years. It's been exhausting. Um, it's, it's our job to make sure they get the time off and the ability to interface with these programs. Uh, I asked about a nurse to patient ratio and you also just referenced it. So maybe you could, could you describe that for us about what it looks like and how it can yeah. be improved so that you don't have nurses on your staff burning out? Yeah, there's no administrator and or manager that wants to have a clinical situation where you don't have the right number of resources for the need of the patient. And um, as nurses have shifted um, to things like travel nursing and you've lost your core or shifted into early retirement, um, you still have to take care of patients. You, you know, and there were times during the pandemic we couldn't even get travel nurses at any cost. So for us, um, you know, we had to change our model. Uh, we had to shift some of our nurses that would normally work in one area uh, to pick up skills and become team members in other areas. It's, it's never as easy as a ratio. Uh, you can start out your day with the right ratio, four to five patients to one nurse, and then clinical life happens and, it, you know, a patient becomes unstable or surge from um, the ED. A variety of things can disrupt what happens relative to being able to meet the needs of your patient. And I, I really think um, for us it's meeting the needs of patients um, with whatever model of care that, that we can. Mm-hmm. And um, we, during our worst, uh, moved to team nursing. Primary nursing is where a nurse interfaces with a group of patients. Team nursing is where you have one or two nurses uh, or other team members who take care of a larger uh, group of patients. But at, at the end of the day, you just have to take great care of patients. Again, you're hearing Beth Beckman here on Where We Live, uh, Chief Nursing Executive, Yale New Haven Health System, as we talk about how the nursing shortage not only impacts uh, patients and families in our state, but this is a a national problem. Coming up, we're going to talk more about uh, travel nurses and as well as, you know, the the models that that hospitals have chosen, especially in the pandemic, when you see uh, staff uh, leaving uh, for multiple reasons. You can join us, 888-720- nine six seven seven or find us on facebook and twitter at where we live uh, jason shared on twitter you have a nursing shortage for many reasons i have a family member at waterbury hospital that has had enough broken equipment and computers no staffing overworked and underpaid it's very simple sounds good on paper yet nobody seems to be addressing the real issues now beth i understand you're obviously here representing a different hospital system but when we think about the the nurse to patient ratio i believe california has mandated ratios and there have been studies in california that show a lower uh, nurse to patient ratios are associated with significant lower mortality nurses burnout and job dissatisfaction were also lower and nurses reported consistently better quality of care. And so can I'm wondering if you can respond to, to that model and what California has seen. Yeah, thanks for the question. California started mandated ratios back in the early 2000s and it hasn't been without its struggles. Um, I'm going to go back to what I said earlier, which is getting the right number of nurses to take care of the kind of patients you have. And sometimes that's even richer um, ratios than what a mandated would call for. And I think what, what people need to realize is 
um, the staffing and staffing to needs of the patients is really fluid. It changes sometimes on an hourly basis. And um, it's, the, it's the genius of charge nurses, those on the front line who are deciding what has to happen on the unit on that hourly basis that gets us to the right place. When you mandate staffing, you are saying um, that it's a very, you know, strict and concrete number of nurses to patients. And sometimes the mandating of ratios doesn't permit you to fluidly move to what's happening in a hospital. And I'll give you an example. ICU nurses are commonly part of a stroke team. Strokes come into the ED or even trauma teams. Um, traumas come into the ED. A nurse in the ICU will pull away for a short period of time, go down to the ED, the emergency department, and help provide care and stabilize that patient. Then they will go back to their um, ICU world and continue their care. Under mandated ratios, that free-flowing to whatever is happening in your hospital, whatever is needed for that patient is very strictly uh, mandated and, and sometimes doesn't permit you to respond what's happening in your hospitals. And, and so, I mean, again, I'll go back to there's a reason that this hasn't proliferated across the country. Uh, California has been pretty much a standalone, um, you know, relative to embracing this. And it's been at the expense of support help in many cases that um, that they've done that. So I, I would say um, trust that um, when you're looking at acuity, that you've got to have the ability to flex to the acuity. Hmm. I mentioned that we're going to be talking about uh, travel nurses and how hospitals have relied on them to fill some of these gaps nationwide. And so I believe you mentioned at the announcement last week that, you know, also part of this goal is to decrease reliance on travel nurses and, and saying that they are cost inefficient. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Is also part of the goal to localize care? Yeah, thank you. Um, let me start off by saying um, I have great respect for travel nurses and uh, they saved the day during the pandemic. Uh, so many courageous, brave people who uh, relocated themselves to um, come to our system to help care for the sickest of the sick. Uh, we couldn't have done it without them. I, I think even travel nurses would say that the optimal is um, to have a, a team that is core and steady and knows each other um, to the point that, you know, when you pick up a phone and call a physician, he knows you and you know him or her. And um, it, is, it is the team effect working at its highest when you have a core, stable team. Um, the, the, the salary piece, um, never at any point did we by any means say that we wouldn't hire a travel nurse, but the long-standing uh, financial capacity to uh, endure those costs is not going to be something that any healthcare system will be able to manage. It is a high-cost, um, low-margin industry that does not have built-in salaries that have increased by four to five times um, during the pandemic, and uh, we're already starting to see the impact of that. You mentioned earlier that, you know, fix broken things uh, buy new equipment, um, hard to do when um, your salaries are um, four to five times more than you've budgeted for. 
Uh, we're, we're getting back to the, the nurse-to-patient ratio uh, conversation that we had. You did mention the team nursing, and so this is something you're planning on innovating, um, and how would that work? I would describe it more as we've flexed in and out of it. Um, ideal for us is always primary nursing. Um, you're not, you know, redeploying nurses to practice citizens in their comfort zone. Um, but um, now we're back to our normal primary nursing, and we're staffed where we really need to be. And um, I think that's an, a really important thing um, for us to continue to try and do at any cost. We've got to make sure that um, patients are cared for and nurses are cared for. Um, at this point, going back to the mental health question, it's being able to afford them the time away for uh, vacation. Um, they need the restorative break to, to find themselves again. You've been hearing Beth Beckman here on Where We Live, Chief Nursing Executive at Yale New Haven Health System. Beth, thank you for coming on to talk about some of the everyday challenges, but also this plan uh, to boost the number of nursing school graduates as well as uh, more uh, faculty and clinical placements uh, to help uh, train them as they start their careers. Thank you for your time today. Thank you, Lucy. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Where We Live. Now, coming up, healthcare facilities have relied on travel nurses to help fill shortages around the country. But now there are lawmakers on the federal and state levels questioning how much hospitals are charged by the agencies that recruit and provide travel nurses. After the break, we're going to talk to an ICU travel nurse from Connecticut and hear from Sarah D. Gregorio about how the travel nursing boom is a symptom of a much larger problem. Are you a nurse? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As we've heard, there are local efforts to boost capacity to graduate more nursing students, but the profession is also dealing with workers leaving their jobs and nurses who are burnt out from the pandemic. The severe shortage has led healthcare facilities to rely on short-term contract workers, also known as travel nurses. But the so-called travel nursing boom has now led lawmakers to question the amounts agencies charge hospitals. 
and some fear this could lead to caps on travel nurse salaries. In a January letter, more than 200 members of Congress proposed an investigation of these agencies. After receiving reports of price gouging, quote, by two, three, or more times pre-pandemic rates, and then taking 40% or more of the amount being charged to the hospitals for themselves and profits. Now, this letter was signed by members of Connecticut's congressional delegation. Representatives Rosa DeLauro, John Larson, Joe Courtney, and Johanna Hayes. Lawmakers insist they have no intention of capping pay. Joining us now on Zoom is Sarah DiGregorio, author of Early and Intimate History of Premature Birth, and she's at work on a forthcoming cultural history of nursing titled Taking Care. Sarah, welcome to our show. Lucy, thank you so much for having me. Uh, So we've mentioned travel nurses a few times. You've also written about this uh, staffing crisis. And um, can you explain to our listeners how travel nurses fit into this, especially at this moment in time, and why it's so complicated? Sure. So as you said, travel nurses are short-term contract workers who go where there's a need. um, And right now there is a need in almost every location in the country. Um, the American Hospital Association says that something like 95% of healthcare facilities have had to hire travel nurses. So obviously this is, you know, this is a huge piece of the healthcare industry right now and very, very um, tied into the fact that um, there simply aren't, um, that the, the nurses are in great need all over the country. Um, And basically the way it works is that these staffing agencies, they describe it to me as um, that they are basically like real estate agents so that they are not setting the prices, but they are connecting essentially sellers um, with buyers. Um, And so they go to hospitals and they work for hospitals. They contract with hospitals and hospitals will say to them, you know, I need 10 neuro ICU nurses and I need um, 12 step down nurses. And, you know, they describe what the shifts are and then they say what they're willing to pay. And so from there, the nurse staff agency goes out into the nurse community and tries to find the right nurses for the hospitals. Um, And in doing so, they are, um, they are filling this need that hospitals have. Um, They do also take a cut. Now I have tried to verify the 40% um, number in that letter from the congressional representatives. I have not been able to verify that even with the American Hospital Association. Um, It sounds to me like the cut taken by um, agencies is more like 25 to 30%. And what agencies will say is that, you know, they have a business to run. They also provide services around helping nurses get licenses in different states. Because when you move from state to state, you have to do quite a lot of paperwork around maintaining your license in different states. They provide um, help for nurses um, around relocation. They provide clinical, um, clinical help for nurses when they are, you know, adapting to different hospital systems. So... You know, that's basically how it works. And the industry has grown by at least 30% um, since the pandemic began. Um, Salaries for nurses have risen by about double um, that they were before the the pandemic. Um, And so, you know, obviously this is a huge boom. It is destabilizing for the healthcare system. But um, when you dig into this, you can see that this is really a symptom of a very long-standing problem in healthcare. 
When you talk about the, the symptom of a very long-standing problem, uh, the fact that hospitals have been um, pretty lean when it comes to staffing up their their nursing staff, even when you in the pandemic, uh, because certain um, surgeries or procedures were delayed, uh, you know, the fact that hospitals were furloughed or maybe um, you know laid off uh, nurses. And so, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that. Yes. So, in general, hospitals try in, in general to keep their nursing staff as lean as they can. Um, and that's because nursing is expensive. Um, and the way that the financial structure of our healthcare system works is that nurses, nursing care is wrapped up into room and board um, in terms of, you know, when your insurance company gets a bill, they are not getting a bill for nursing care. They're getting a bill for room and board. And that can um, change, the, the rate changes with acuity. So for instance, an ICU room and board bill is going to be more expensive than general medical floor. Um, and some of that has to do with um, you know, nurse staffing. Quite a bit of it has to do with nurse staffing. Um, but from a hospital's point of view, if you can have one nurse taking care of six patients, or you can have one nurse taking care of four patients, um, for them, having nurses take care of more patients is just much, much more profitable. And so overall, in, throughout history, hospitals have tried to sort of keep their nursing staffs quite lean. And as you've seen very clearly in the pandemic, they sort of try to treat it as a tap where you turn it on when you need it and you turn it off when you don't need it. So in the beginning of the pandemic, you saw nurses furloughed, you saw nurses laid off um, when those lucrative um procedures were canceled. And then, of course, um, you saw hospitals frantically trying to hire people back. And that is just not a good recipe for retention. It doesn't make people feel valued in their jobs. It doesn't make them feel secure in their jobs. Um, and so when you combine this then with con working conditions within hospitals, um, you know, you can see that nurses have found that, you know, the conditions of their employment have, for many of them, just become unacceptable. Um, and, and, and I think that that's, you know, that's some of the broader context for that. Um, when, and I, I appreciate what Beth had to say about, um, California's ratio law, I will just give you, if it's okay, a quick example of a way that this can be different. So I spoke with a nurse who worked, um, in the ICU at UCLA and she said, this was, I think she was the only nurse who told me this. She never felt that her ratios were unsafe. Um, she never had to worry if she was going to, um, you know, feel like she wasn't providing good care for a patient. And that was because the hospital actually had so many more nurses than they needed, needed, quote unquote, right? So you're right, you can start out a shift in ratio. And then as Beth said, clinical life happens. So many nurses have told me about this. You know, someone goes out sick, um, you get a huge wave of patients. This happens all the time. But what um, the nurse at UCLA told me was that for these things that happen every day, they had um, they had many float nurses. They had many nurses on call. Um, the charge nurses never had their own patients at the beginning of a shift, so that then they could trans transfer in and out, taking care of patients. But unfortunately, that model is very expensive. It, it, it requires a hospital to be willing to pay more nurses than they may need in order to have enough nurses 
if they do need them. Um, and so, and that makes a huge difference for patient outcomes. It also makes a huge difference in the working conditions of nurses and their willingness to stay in their jobs. So you can sort of see how complicated that is. Right. Well, we have a, an ICU travel nurse joining us on Zoom. Uh, Paul Bannock is actually from Connecticut, who's currently living, or rather living and working in Seattle. Paul, welcome to our show. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. So tell us a little bit about um, how you got into travel nursing and, and how this conversation we're having resonates with you. Um, so uh, when I decided to go to travel nursing, um, I had taken a new staff position. I'd been a nurse for four years. I took a new staff position at a new hospital. Um, I wanted to try a different specialty, pediatric ICU. And after being a, a year at this hospital, um, I had my annual evaluation and um, you know, I got great remarks all down the line. You did excellent, excellent, excellent. You're gonna get the full raise this year and what we're offering is 1%. So at the time I was making $33 an hour, a 1% raise brought me up to $33.33. My rent that year increased um, more than my wage did. So if I had stayed at that hospital, effectively I would be making less money than I did that year. Um, so in, in that moment, it, it just struck me um, that I had an opportunity to pay off my loans, pay off my nursing school loans, which were expensive. Nursing degrees are expensive these days. Um, pay off my grad school debt. And uh, travel nursing was my opportunity to do that because the travel nurse market um, responds to the demands of nurses in, in real time. Um, and it really, the, the compensation reflects the demand for nurses. So what has been your experience as a travel nurse, especially while this pandemic continues, Paul? Um, you know, I've had a ton of, uh, great experiences and a ton of, um, really tough experiences. Um, I want to get back to Beth's example of, um, you know, when, when we were responding about safe staffing ratios, she's an example of the neuro ICU. So, um, I'm an ICU nurse. I take care of, uh, one or two patients who are critically ill in the ICU. So say your father has a stroke and he's admitted to Yale, and he's in the neuro ICU. I'm his nurse. I'm taking care of your father and another critically ill patient. What is happening in hospitals now is if, you know, if, as per Beth's example, if there is an emergency down in, um, you know, a, a stroke emergency down in the, in the emergency department, they will pull me from my patients and send me down to respond to that stroke emergency in the emergency room. That leaves my patients, you know, your father who's admitted to Yale's neuro ICU is now unmonitored. We're, we're asking our colleague, you know, our, our peers on the unit who also have two critically ill patients to now cover four critically ill patients because I'm off the unit responding in the emergency room to a, a different patient. And I could be down there for an hour or two. So, safe staffing um, legislation in California, it protects that ratio. So if your father's admitted to the, the neuro ICU because he had a massive stroke and he's critically ill, you are guaranteed to have um, a nurse watching over your father. Just your, your, your nurse is watching two patients, not four patients. 
um, safe staffing legislation is, uh, you know, challenging for executives because they have to hire more nurses to monitor patients to respond to emergencies. Um, and I think the most, you know, the most frustrating thing for nurses, um, you know, for, for me at the time when I got my 1% raise, I was working in Baltimore, but I have friends working in um, Connecticut hospitals. Uh, and I think across the board, what you hear is um, nurses are really frustrated that, that, that senior staff can't be retained, that experienced ICU nurses can't be retained. And we're told, you know, there's, there's limited budget for that. But at the same time, you know, these are nonprofit hospitals. So executive salaries are public information. And we're watching our, you know, our CEOs take home million dollar bonuses at the end of the year. And I think, you know, in the, in the example of Yale, I believe the, you know, the CEO compensation has increased by $200,000 every year for the past like 10 years. Um, this is the same across the board at large corporate hospitals. There's more and more money going towards administration. I don't want to blame it all on, um, on, on admin, uh, you know, taking up that budget, but because um, there's a lot of there's a lot of problems with our healthcare system. But that is one place to start to retain your senior staff so that your father in the neuro ICU has an experienced nurse watching over him and is not neglected when they pull you off the unit to go respond to an emergency. And Paul, I wanted to take a quick call. Uh, Mytel is calling in from Connecticut. What did you want to share, Mytel? Hi, my name is, uh, I go by MJ. Um, I'm a nurse, I've been a nurse for over a decade and I moved recently from California to Connecticut and I can definitely speak to um, the nurse ratios in California. I uh, worked in the ER for many years, and I saw such a benefit um, to have, you know, high-acuity patients and even have my, my uh, ratios cut down to three patients. And when I had lower-acuity patients, I would have four. And, you know, we didn't really have people flexing from the ICU to help us because we were able to care for our own patients. And so... That brought a lot of value, I think, to um, knowing that our, our shift was going to be stabilized and we didn't have a lot of, like, uh, movement within our our shift. Um, so I think it's something that could really benefit nurses here in Connecticut. Um, they need to ha know that there's a security in, like, not being piled on patients throughout their shift. Well, thank you for telling us a little bit about uh, your perspective. Uh, David called in from Simsbury. David, are you still there? I'm still here. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, we were talking about uh, travel nursing. I understand that you were working in critical care for two decades and you switched to travel nursing. Can you tell us your experience? Sure. So um, I have uh, more than 25 years nursing experience. Uh, the previous 20 had been in critical care. Um, I had spent uh, 14 years as a critical care float, which basically meant I, wor I meant I worked in the ER, the ICU, PACU, basically anywhere those skills are needed. Uh, but in my heart, I'm an emergency room nurse. So uh, when COVID hit, of course, it was a very scary time. Um, about my last three months of working, I, I retired uh, May of 2020 um, because my kids were begging me to retire because it was so dangerous. But my last two or three months were all in the ICU. 
and it was uh, it was as horrible as anybody can ever imagine. So I retired, but I regretted retiring uh, only because I'm an experienced nurse, um, and I wanted to pass I want to pass that on to the people coming up. So um, I'd always wanted to know what travel nursing was. I decided to uh, take a travel position. My first travel position was September to December this past year. And then I just started a new travel position in March uh, with another organization. It happens to be a hospital that is one of the Yale um, partners. And uh, I mean, I, I find travel nursing exciting. I like the fact that I'm only committed for 13 weeks. At the end of my 13-week assignment, I can extend it or I can not extend it. Um, and I actually, this uh, my previous ex- assignment, once it was done, I decided I'd take off the rest of December, January, February, and then pick up something in, when the weather got better. Um, because my wife and I like to travel, so we did some travel stuff. So it's nice being semi-retired. Um, what got me into the travel part of it was, I mean, the money is insane. Um it is truly incredible. I, I make if I worked full time for a year, I would make double what I was making before. And, well, thank you, thank you, David, for sharing a little bit of your experience. We're going to continue talking about nursing with our guests, Paul Bannock, an ICU travel nurse from Connecticut, who's currently working in Seattle, and Sarah DeGregorio, author of Early: An Intimate History of Premature Birth. She's working on a forthcoming book about the cultural history of nursing. We'll be back after a short break. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking about nursing today and a convergence of factors leading to a shortage of nurses in our state and nationwide. With us on Zoom, Paul Bannock, an ICU travel nurse from Connecticut, and Sarah DiGregorio, who's uh, at work on a forthcoming cultural history of nursing titled Taking Care. Uh, Paul and Sarah, we talked a lot about the nurse-to-patient ratio and models that could help uh, nurses. Uh, but getting back to the, the travel nurse, uh, conversation, uh, Paul, with Congress now focusing on salaries and how much these staffing agencies are charging. You know, how is this resonating with nurses like yourself? Um, I think with um, you know, staff nurses are demoralized because uh, as you know, healthcare is as we see such a profitable industry. There is um, a lot of money there um, to be shared and. Uh, you know, for staff nurses, a seasoned staff nurse like myself at four years, five years of experience to get a 1% raise um, while watching uh, your leadership's compensation balloon, um, it's really demoralizing. Um, for travel nurses, you know, travel nurses went, most travel nurses leave their staff positions because they can be compensated better. Um and you know when we're look when we're hearing about uh, legislation to cap nurses' pay, it's just um, it's astonishing because, like I've said, we've seen across the board in hospitals across the country, you've seen um, you know executive salaries just balloon um, while nurses' salaries stay somewhat stagnant. Uh, I think there's a lot of focus on trying to recruit new grad nurses. There's not any focus on trying to retain your seasoned staff. 
uh, Sarah, who's still with us, you know, speaking broadly, when you hear these conversations that are happening, you've obviously talked to, to many nurses, both uh, staff nurses as well as travel nurses, uh, Sarah. Do you think it, it, it speaks to just the undervaluing of the nursing profession, uh, you know, focusing on the pay for these healthcare workers who are so vital uh, when, as uh, Paul just mentioned, you know, admin pay continues to rise and, you know, we, we don't hear uh, Congress getting upset about that. That's right. Um, yes, absolutely. You know, there is a sort of breathless tone to a lot of the coverage I've seen. That's like, you know, can you believe that nurses are making this much? Um, and obviously the system we have right now um, is not working, but I would say, you know, yes, I can believe that nurses are making that much because nurses are the ones who really are providing the care that makes a hospital function. Um, hospitals simply could not function without nurses. And I think, you know, historically there have, you know, there's a, there is a long tradition of, of um, men providing nursing care and um, men in nursing. But I think part of this might have to do with, you know, um, traditionally this being sort of a um, feminized, it's been thought of as feminized labor. Um, there's a lot of, you know, um, the idea that nurses, nursing is a calling, that nurses do this out of the goodness of their heart, um, when in fact, you know, nurses are educated, licensed professionals um, who make our healthcare system run. And right now, they are in the driver's seat in terms of wages in, in many cases. I mean, at least in terms of the travel agency, travel nursing boom. Um, and the emotions, I think, that this stirs up for people are really interesting um, because you're right. We absolutely don't hear about, you know, oh, my gosh, can you believe that physicians are making this much or do you believe that executives are making this much? And I just yeah, I think it's important to think about why that is um, nursing in the United States. Um, has historically been very undervalued um, when hospitals first opened in the um, in the 19th century, nursing was provided for free by trainees and hospitals for a long time really resisted paying nurses at all. Um, and so that's really like that's the context for I think a lot of this, I would say almost hysteria about how much nurses are being paid. I do think it's a problem that we are, you know, that that so much of the nursing um, workforce is you know, there's that the staffing issues exist. But I do think that we have to think about that in context. Mm. Uh, Paul, I mentioned uh, again that you're out working in Seattle as an ICU a travel nurse. Uh, when I was talking with Beth Beckman uh, from Yale about, you know, the fact that so many nurses are, are leaving this profession, uh, I cited a, just a recent story from the Boston Globe looking at New England hospitals. And so often we hear people say, well, nurses are resilient, but how should hospital systems be working to help their staff who have are dealing with trauma and grief beyond mental health days? Um, I think that the number one way they can help their staff is to improve staffing so that we can do our jobs. And our job, our number one job is safety. So when your, you know, your grandmother, your mom is in the hospital and is on a heart monitor, there's someone there to respond if something happens to her. Uh, you, you know, nurses, safety is in our bones. That is our number one mission is to protect patients. And I think nurses are just crushed because we can't do that. Understaffing means we have to neglect patients. 
Uh, if, you know, if, if I'm in a room for an hour, yesterday I was in a room for an hour intubating my patient in the morning. There's no one there. We did not have a resource nurse that day. If I'm in my room for an hour, all the other nurses are busy too because we're understaffed. I have another patient that no one is monitoring. Um, you know, there are alarms. There's, they're, they're on critical medications. Um, they're, on, they're on heart monitors. If there's, if there's an alarm going off, we need someone there to respond to it. I think nurses are just totally crushed because we know that patients are being put at risk because we don't have enough staff. And that is just totally demoralizing. And it, it makes it really hard for us to continue to do our job. Mm. Uh, Sarah, we just have a couple minutes left. Did you want to respond to that as well? Yes. I mean, I have spoken with nurses who have, you know, experienced a lot of what Paul is talking about. And I think it's, um, as he's saying, you know, they're crushed. It's a, it's a nightmare to know that your patients need the best care you can provide and to not be able to provide it because of working conditions, because there simply aren't enough of you. Um, I did speak with one nurse, um, who worked at Oshner, and I will say Oshner is a nonprofit um, hospital system, um, but the CEO does make $5 million. But, you know, she was telling me that they were so understaffed that she was running all day long and all she could think was, please don't let me miss something that's critical because she knew she was going to miss something. And so her goal was to not miss something that was critical. And she did end up leaving um, to be a travel nurse. And she is going to use the extra money that she's making as a travel nurse to get out of nursing. And she's someone who didn't want to leave nursing. She loved nursing and she would have stayed if she could have, you know, if she could have maintained her own um, well-being while doing it. Um, but that's the kind of thing I'm hearing over and over from nurses. And that's how that connection between understaffing and the travel nurse, boom, you know, you can see that connects in her story and really comes back to working conditions. Well, Sarah Gregorio, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, Sarah's author of Early and Intimate History of Premature Birth, but she's at work on a forthcoming cultural history of nursing titled Taking Care. We look forward to talking with you again. Lucy, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Also with us on Where We Live, Paul Bannock, an ICU travel nurse from Connecticut, currently working in Seattle. Paul, thank you for sharing your experience. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical director is Kat Pastor. We'll be back tomorrow. Mm-hmm.